Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. So we, we all set here? Okay. Shabbat Shalom. We've had a break from our series that we were in on Elijah and Elisha uh, due to all the high holidays. Uh, but I want to resume today uh, with what is, is now part three. If you recall, we left off last time, over a month ago actually, uh, with Elijah's dramatic victory on Mount Carmel over the prophets of Baal and Ashtoreth, uh, as recounted in 1 Kings chapter 18. So I want to pick up today now with the aftermath and go through 1 Kings chapter 19 together with you, where Elijah flees from Jezebel and hears God's still small voice. So, so let's read together 1 Kings 19, uh, beginning in verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I will make your life like the life of one of them. Elijah was afraid, ran for his life. Uh, uh, and when he, when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. And he lay down under the bush and, and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was, was a cake of bread, baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. The, the Malch Elohim, the, uh, the angel of the Lord, came a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey's too much for you. So he got up and he ate and drank, strengthened by that food. He traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. Uh, there he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Eliyahu? He replied, I've been very jealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites, they've rejected your covenant, tore down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. And I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me, too. The Lord said, Go out, stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire. But the Lord wasn't in the fire. And after the fire came a still, small voice. When Eliyahu heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face, went out, stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites, they've rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me, too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Haziel, king over Aram. Also, anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. Anoint Elisha, Elisha, uh, son of Shaphat from Abel Maholah, who succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Haziel, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel 
all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, whose mouths have not kissed him. Okay, uh, let's recap where we've left off here in the, in the life of Elijah. Uh, Ahab and Jezebel, they've established Baal worship as the official religion of the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, Elijah, the Lord's prophet, he dramatically appears before the people and he says, meet me on Mount Carmel. And at Mount Carmel, Elijah has a contest challenging the prophets of Baal and Ashtoreth in front of thousands of people and, and, and the king, King Ahab. And he says to them, basically, my God can lick your God. Meet me at Mount Carmel after school. Uh, I'm going to show you who's the boss in front of everybody. So Elijah, he says, these two altars set up on the mountain. He says to the prophets of Baal, you pray to your God to send down fire on your altar. They pray. Nothing happens. And then Elijah prays. And down comes the fire of the Lord. And it consumes the sacrifice. But then it also burns up the wood on the altar. And then it burns up even the rocks and the stones on the altar. And it lifts up the water in the trench uh, that had been poured over all the sacrifice. And all of Israel falls down and cries out in 1 Kings 18, verse 19, Adonai Huwa Elohim. Adonai Huwa Elohim. The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. So in essence, what happens here, Elijah, he rents Texas Stadium, takes center stage on the 50-yard line, and on cue, he produces the most astounding, spectacular miracle that people have ever seen. In uh, the last part of verse 18, it says this, 1 Kings 18, verse 46. The power of the Lord came upon Elijah, tucking his cloak into his belt. He ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. Now Jezreel was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. And Elijah was a marked man. Ahab and Jezebel, Jezebel had been trying to kill him. So why would Elijah run right into the capital of the, of the nation where he's a marked man with a price on his head? And only reason must be this. He expected that now either one Ahab and Jezebel would repent, or two, the people would cast them out. But one way or another, he now expected, this, after this great victory on Mount Carmel, that the faith of the Lord would once again become the faith of Israel. He was utterly convinced of this, or else he'd never have gone into the capital. But instead, Jezebel sends him this message, which he says, May the God strike me down if I, tomorrow night I haven't killed you. And Elijah he runs off into the desert. And then he runs all the way to Mount Horeb, which is another name for Mount Sinai. Why? Because he wants to see God. He says, I don't know, God, who you are anymore. I'm so afraid and confused and upset, Lord. I don't, I don't even know who you really are. Elijah, he had done everything, absolutely everything that he could possibly have done. But Israel's evil leaders, they weren't even shaken. They were unshaken. They weren't even phased. They weren't even impressed. And the people did not rise up to overthrow Ahab and Jezebel. There's no coup d'etat. There's no uprising. Not even anyone with placards, you know, making, making the evening news. <laughs> no demonstrations. Not even any trash talk on Twitter. No rallies and people saying, we want the Lord back. No, nothing. Nothing happens against this heathen, pagan status quo. Elijah, he had rented Texas Stadium. He did everything anyone could have possibly have asked for. But nothing happens. So he runs off into the desert because now he's doubting who God is. And he goes to Mount Horeb, the mountain of God, to meet the Lord. And in this passage, God shows Elijah who he is. And in doing so, in doing so God shows us who he is. So who is the true God? 
When he comes, he comes in these three ways. Number one, when God comes, he comes in tremendous wisdom. When Elijah runs off, we see this man of God cracking in despair. And often, even after unbelievable, adrenaline-filled, record-setting runs of achievement and spiritual victory, you actually often find yourself most vulnerable to doubt and fear and depression. And that's exactly what happens to Elijah. As high as he is in chapter 18 on Mount Carmel, that's how low he goes now in chapter 19, uh, wanting to die. This is the Jezebel spirit at work, coming against the man of God. Elijah is now the target of this immense and intense uh, spiritual warfare. But he must resist, he must fight back, he must revive his faith. Uh, Elijah, he's in complete despair. Look at uh, verse 3, verse nine, first Kings 19, verse 3. Elijah was afraid. He ran for his life. He's scared when Jezebel vows to kill him. And this classic tactic of spiritual warfare, a classic tactic is intimidation, uh, trying to instill fear and doubt in you. You cannot listen to the lies of the enemy. You need to put on the helmet of salvation to guard your heart and your mind. We're told this in 2 Corinthians 10.5. We demolish arguments. And every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Messiah. So Elijah is running in fear. Uh, up on Mount Carmel, you know, uh, facing down the 450 prophets of Baal, the 400 prophets of Asherah. He wasn't afraid at all. Uh, he mocked these pagan prophets. He mocked their pagan gods. But now he's come down from this high, and he needs time to recover and regroup uh, and recharge his batteries, his spiritual batteries. He's done everything he can do, but the pagan monarchy in Israel hasn't budged. The deep state is striking back. <laughs> and they're still in control. <laughs> and Elijah, he's spent. Uh, he's exhausted. He's depressed. He's in despair. And, and then even despair for his life. Look at verse 4. Verse 2 is 19.4. He went a day's journey into the wilderness, came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Maybe some of you can actually relate to this. Maybe some of you are are in depression or or despair or discouragement. Now when God begins to to deal with Elijah, what does God do? How does he deal with... Now how God deals with Elijah reveals this unbelievable wisdom of God. What does God do? He does three things. And this shows us a lot about God's wisdom. First, he sends an angel. And by the way, not just any angel, but verse 7 tells us it's the angel of the Lord himself. Uh, which most commentators understand to be a pre-incarnate visitation of Yeshua. Now, what does this angel do? What does God do first with this completely despondent prophet? Does the angel come and say, fear not? No. Does he say, I bring you good tidings? No. Does the angel say, repent? No. Does he even say, do you want to talk about it, Elijah? No. What What does God do first for Elijah? He cooks. <laughs> this is the angel of the Lord, don't forget. All he does is cook. He cooks a cake of bread. This is the first mention, by the way, in the Bible of angel food cake. <laughs> uh, and then he touches him. And he reflects Elijah's feelings, saying, You're tired. Now, what does all this mean? Well, the first things it means is that God's not like a lot of us. 
a lot of us believers who, who are sure that if you're depressed or despondent, it always has to be a spiritual problem. Most of us, when we try to counsel someone or encourage someone who's despondent, we immediately go down our standard troubleshooting list of all the things that they've got to do. Uh, so he puts in the overhead. We say, okay, so we say, okay, Elijah, number one, uh, have you prayed in faith? Number two, have you confessed all unknown sin? Three, have you claimed the promises? Have you rebuked the devil? Have you pleaded the blood? Have you thanked God? And we go down our typical checklist. But Elijah, like us, also has a physical nature. And he lives in a physical world. And sometimes you don't need a lecture on your lack of spirituality. Sometimes you don't need a sermon. Sometimes you need a walk at the sea or a great meal or some sleep. And God actually starts there with Elijah. God starts there. And then in addition to our physical nature, secondly, we also have a relational nature as well. We need touch and nearness and contact with others, which is what Elijah gets. The text, in fact, was out of his way to say twice that the angel touched him. And then thirdly, we have a creative nature. So sometimes we need art or music or literature or poetry. Uh, And the point is, the Lord treats Elijah's depression and despondency with this multidisciplinary approach. He treats him understanding all the dimensions in which he lives. Elijah is a physical being, he's a relational being, he's a spiritual being. So the third thing the angel does uh, is that, well, first he cooks for him. Second thing the Lord does is uh, he listens, he listens. Uh, and then in 1 Kings 19, verse 9, the Lord looks at Elijah and says, what are you doing here? And when God asks, asks a question, it's not to get information. No, obviously not. It's not as if the Lord walks into the cave, surprised, exclaims, whoa, it's you, Elijah. <laughs> what are you doing here? <laughs> you look awful. What happened to you? <laughs> no, when God asks you a question, it's never to give him information. It's to give you information. So, and God, in fact, asked this question twice. Uh, if you look carefully, you'll see for a long time, all God does is listen to Elijah's complaints. In verse 9 and, and, and in verse 13, God says, what are you doing here? In verse 4, Elijah says, I'm no better than my ancestors. Uh, and in verses 10 and 14, he's complaining. He's the only one left. The only one zealous for the Lord. All the other Israelites have rebelled and seek his life. Most of what we're getting here is Elijah venting to the Lord. <laughs> and the Lord just listening. And Elijah says this in verse 10. I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. In other words, my program is perfect. I'm very zealous. So what's wrong with you, God? And then he says this. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn on your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left. They're trying to kill me now, too. So we see Elijah overly focusing on himself. Not seeing the big picture. Elijah has a psychological nature too. And in depression and despair, is therefore turning inward. Making it all about him. He's having a hard time getting outside of himself. So, so we have a physical nature. And sometimes what we need is, is, is a bed and breakfast by the sea. We have an emotional, psychological nature. Sometimes we need somebody to talk to. I mean, we need human touch and contact. And the third thing God does is tell Elijah... You need, because we have a spiritual nature as well, you need to spend time in my word. You need to listen to my still, small voice. You need to listen to my word. And you need to come into my presence and be renewed. Because we do have a spiritual nature as well. 
So let's summarize this, this first point. Look at, the, look at God's wisdom. Uh, and the marks of a comprehensive worldview. Because when you see how someone treats a depressed person, you often see that counselor's worldview. For some people, their worldview is that everything is scientific. Basically, you know, we're just animals. Uh, we're just biology. Uh, basically, there is no spirit. There is no supernatural. And therefore, they're going to say to a depressed person, uh, it's all chemical. Take a pill. And they're going to reduce everything to mere mechanics. They're going to reduce everything to the chemicals and, 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 the, and the symptoms and synapses. And they're going to say, take a pill. There's a second group. I'll call them uh, the moralistic counselors. They reduce everything not just to the physical plane, but to, but, uh, to the spiritual plane only. And the moralists, they're always scolding and correcting and judging. You're not praying enough. You have unrepentant sin. Uh, you, you don't have enough faith. You haven't cast out the devil. You're not doing this. You're not doing that. And these are, are people who say it's a sin to take a pill for illness, especially if it's a mental or emotional one. Why? Because everything is spiritual and nothing is physical. Moralistic people often want to deny that you have a physical being and a physical nature. And they say the physical and the psychological are not important. The only thing that's important is the spiritual realm. Uh, the spiritual is all that counts. And they talk as if we live in nothing but a spiritual plane. So if you, uh, if you have any uh, medicine, or if you ever go to a doctor, you have lack of faith. Because they've reduced everything to the spiritual plane. And then thirdly, a lot of people reduce everything to the psychological. They say, you just need to talk. All you need to do is talk it out. All you need is a good counselor. I can't judge you. I can never you know, tell you there's anything wrong with you. I, I, I can never accuse you of sin or tell you you need to repent. You just need a therapist. That's all. You won't evaluate. You won't make value judgments. Uh, maybe you were probably abused as a child, right? <laughs> Nothing is your fault. No guilt, no blame. You were probably hurt. You just need inner healing. You know, it's all psychological. Now listen, friends. When a worldview reduces everything to the physical or the spiritual or the psychological, it's not going to be able to adequately deal with real problems. If you try to reduce everything, you won't be able to deal with the complexity of reality. And therefore, you won't be able to really help people. But the God of the Bible is never so simplistic or one-dimensional. He's called Pelio the Wonderful Counselor. The God of the Bible created us a tripartite Physical, psychological, spiritual. And the God of the Bible wants to redeem all three of these aspects of reality. The God of the Bible invented body, soul, and spirit, but he's redeeming all three of them as well. And therefore, he deals with all three of them. So if you have a worldview that takes all three of these dimensions into account, into consideration, then you've got a worldview that can stand up to reality. But if you reduce everything, it will not work. That was Yeshua followers. One of our problems, we often have been dealing with people who are discouraged or trying to help others, is that either we're sometimes super spiritual or sometimes not, not spiritual enough. So on the one hand, we can be overly spiritual. Instead of saying this person needs, need, you know, needs a rest or a friend to talk to, we immediately want to do what? We immediately want to cast out all the demons. <laughs> on the other hand, we're typically not spiritual enough. But when's the last time you fasted and prayed for three days? When's the last time you spent 40 days seeking the face of God? When's the last time you read through the Bible cover to cover? When's the last time you memorized five verses a day for a month? 
On the one hand, when Elijah needed to get back on his, on his feet, uh, which he did, was something far more spiritual than we ever give anyone. And at the same time, something far less spiritual as well. So that's point number one on the overhead, uh, the wisdom of God. When God comes, he comes with a wonderful counselor. He comes with the constant wisdom on the overhead, please. On number two, the second thing we learn here is that when God comes, he comes with what I'm going to call humbling multiplicity. Humbling multiplicity. The second thing we learn is this. Why is Elijah going to Mount Horeb? Why is Mount Horeb called the mountain of God? You know, because that's not the only name of this mountain. It's also known as Mount Sinai. Elijah travels 40 days and nights to Mount Sinai. And when he gets there, he goes into a cave. At least that's the way the NIV translates this, this Hebrew word. But the, as a cave. But it's actually a much more generic word than that in Hebrew. The Hebrew literally means a, a hollow or a cleft. And that word cleft should ring a bell. Because centuries before Moses went to that very same mountain and said to the Lord in Exodus 33, 18, show me your glory. He says to God, I want to know who you really are. I want to see what you really look like, who you are. And in Exodus 33, verse 21, the Lord said, there's a place near me where you can stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I'll put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I'll remove my hand and you see my back, but my face must not be seen. Now here, centuries later, in the exact same place with Elijah, we have almost the same situation. Elijah goes into a cleft in the rock on Mount Sinai. Uh, and commentators say it's possible Elijah went to the very same spot as Moses. The very same cleft in the rock. And Elijah, like Moses, in essence says, I want to see you, Lord. And in 1 Kings 19, verse 11, the Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord's about to pass by. The exact same thing he said to Moses, I'm about to pass by. And the Lord shows up here in 1 Kings 19 to Elijah in many, many forms, right? In this amazing multiplicity of forms. Uh, he appears as wind, uh, as earthquake, as fire. There is no other place in the whole Bible where God appears in such a range uh, all at once of different forms and manifestations. First, he appears earlier in verse 7 as the angel of the Lord. And then when Elijah gets to the mountain, we see earthquake, wind, fire. First, there's this hurricane. You know, this incredible wind tearing the mountain, shattering the rocks. Then an earthquake, uh, then a fire. But we're told each time the Lord is not in these things. This doesn't mean the Lord is never in the earthquake or the wind or the fire. In fact, God himself clearly sent these three signs to Elijah. They didn't just accidentally or coincidentally suddenly all appear. These three signs came from the Lord. He is the God of the earthquake. He is the God of the fire. He is the God of the wind. He sent them. And there are a number of other times in the scriptures where God does indeed appear in these forms. So, for example, the Lord shows up to Moses in the burning bush as what? As fire. Uh, and and uh, when he shows up to Abraham in Genesis 15, the famous covenant between the parts, what was he? He was a blazing torch. He was fire. When he shows up to Job, at the very end of the book of Job, what was he? Wind and storm. He shows up to the apostles on the day of Shavuot in Acts chapter 2 as what? Wind. When the Lord showed up on Mount Sinai in Israel, what was he? He descends on the mountain and there was an earthquake. So what we're seeing here in 1 Kings 19 with Elijah is almost the entire range of different ways in which God has appeared in the scriptures. 
But then after all this, then the most surprising thing of all, the ultimate manifestation of his presence to Elijah, the Lord shows up as a gentle whisper, as a calm, soft sound, whereas the old King James puts it, a still, small voice. Now, what does this mean? Here's what it means. The Lord has been very sweet about this, very gentle, very patient, but in the end, Elijah condemns himself out of his own mouth. Elijah shows up, he's despondent, he says this in, in verse 14. I was very zealous to the Lord of hosts, meaning I had the right plan. I executed it perfectly. What's wrong with these people that they didn't repent? Uh, and indirectly he said, what's wrong with you, God? Why didn't you come through? The Israelites, they rejected your covenant, tore down your altars, put the prophets to death with a sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me. Elijah responded, why? Because he's put God in a box. He, he knows exactly what the Lord has to do. He knows exactly what the Lord should do uh, and who God is. And yet God shows up in this humbling multiplicity of forms to show Elijah, you can't put me in a box. And, in fact, and, and the fact that Elijah puts God in, in the box leads Elijah to both over-optimism and over-pessimism. First, it leads him to over-optimism. Elijah thinks, this is the plan. Uh, I've had this great victory on Mount Carmel. Now God's got to cause Ahab and Jezebel to repent. And a great revival to break out over all Israel. This has got to happen. Now he God says he's got to come through now. This is the divine blueprint. I just know it. I've got my charts and my graphs and my timelines. I know exactly when Yeshua's going to return and when the rapture's going to happen. It's all ordained, right? God's got to overthrow Ahab and Jezebel just the way I said. And he's got to overthrow, he's got to overthrow, overthrow them spiritually so they'll change their hearts. Overthrow them physically but the people rising up. It's got to happen and it's got to happen now. But it doesn't. And now Elijah's despondent and downcast. But here's the truth to put this on the overhead as well. God has not let him down. Elijah's plan has let him down. Because he had identified God with his plan. You see, when you think God has to show up as a fire, he'll show up as a, as a whisper. And when every time you think he has to show up as a whisper, he'll show up as a fire. <laughs> God shows up as a fire to Moses. But he shows up as a whisper to Elijah. God says, I am not a tame God. I am not the God of your hand. You cannot put me in a box. And therefore, Elijah, your depression ultimately is your fault. It's your fault. Elijah believed God had to do this and had to do that. But when God finally starts to talk to him, the Lord says, Elijah, by the way, I do have a plan. A very detailed plan. Look at verse 15. First Kings 19, verse 15. The Lord said to him, Go back where you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Haziel, king of Aram. Anoint Jehu, king of Israel. Anoint Elisha to see you as prophet. The Lord says, I have a very detailed plan. It's just not your plan, Elijah. <laughs> Elijah's despondent because he's put a guy in a box. Uh, he's, he's overly optimistic and now he's devastated and overly pessimistic. He was overly optimistic about his plan for national revival. But he's now too pessimistic, saying, I'm the only one left. But God says, what do you mean you're the only one left? Look at verse 18. I've got 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed the knee to Baal. I've got 7,000 who haven't kissed his idol, meaning had not worshipped him. 
we all, by the way, we all put God in a box. And we think that you know, we're the only ones who've arrived. Right? So, for example, the Presbyterians will say the Charismatics are, are giving up all this emotional excess. And the Pentecostals say the Bible church people, they're all head and no heart. And the non-denominationals, uh, they'll say that the, the Anglicans are just dead foremost. And the Anabaptists say the Calvinists uh, reject free will. And the Reformed Protestants say the Arminians reject the sovereignty of God. And the Baptists say the Messianics are all legalists. And the Messianics say the, the Evangelicals are antinomian. We all put God in a box. And we all think we're the only ones left. We're the only ones who've really got it together, you know, and, and have the monopoly on the truth. The only one in the whole world that God is dealing with and working through. <laughs> and in our myopia, and in our, in our self-focus, we say, you know, not much is really happening in this world apart from my little stream and my movement. God's not really moving in all these other denominations and theologies and communions. And you know, there's really just a few of us real believers. A few of us who really know. You know, just a few. And we fail to see all the incredible things that God is doing in the world. For people who aren't like us. By the way, do you know how he's working through the Anglicans in Africa? And the Presbyterians in South Korea? And the Charismatics in South America? We don't see all this. Why? Because we put God in our little messianic box. Whatever box you have. When Elijah is told to go out, by the way, to anoint Haziel, king of Aram, I wonder what was Elijah thinking? Because Haziel was a pagan king of a pagan nation. But nonetheless, God says, I'm going to do some terrific things to my servant, Haziel. God says, I've got all kinds of people out there that you don't see because they're not like you. They're not theologically correct, according to you. They don't have everything together. And you put me in a box. As a result, Elijah, you're despondent. But you're paying the price for your own narrow-mindedness. And as Elizabeth Elliot says this in her great work called Gates of Splendor, put this on the overhead. She says, God, God is God. And if he is God, there's no safe place except in his will. And that will will always be immeasurably, unspeakably, infinitely beyond any of your largest notions of what he's up to. Earthquake, wind, fire, angel, cooking, listening, hurricane, still small voice. One of the reasons we get so discouraged and depressed is because we put God in a box and we become, we become both overly pessimistic and overly optimistic. Now here's what's going on. God is teaching Elijah the gospel. I'll put that on the overhead. What's the gospel? In a nutshell, here's the gospel. You are more sinful than you ever dared believe. You're also, at the same time, more loved and accepted in Yeshua than you ever dared hope. Now, if you don't believe in the sinfulness of sin, which is why Elijah naively thought that his program was going was to you know, save the world, or if you don't believe in, in, in the gracefulness of grace, which is why Elijah thought he, you, God kept you working over here or over there. God kept you working through those people. If you don't believe those things, you won't get the gospel. Elijah's view of sin was too little, and his view of grace was too little. Because he had a lot of religiosity in him. He had a lot of religion, which is the enemy of the gospel. You live in the overhead. Religion says this. 
God's not so holy that I can't please him by being good. And if that's you in the overhead again, we've shrunk, you have shrunk the idea of sin because you say, I can do it. And you've shrunk the idea of God's holiness because you say, he can be pleased by me. And you've shrunk the idea of grace because God's just really waiting for you to do what you need to do. No. Again, on the overhead, the gospel says you are more wicked than you ever dared believe. And in Messiah, you're more loved and accepted than you ever dared hope. And only when you embrace this gospel will you be saved from both your over-optimism about your own abilities and your over-pessimism about everybody else's. The reason why Elijah's a mess is because he's not looking at the world through the gospel. And he hasn't been humbled by the multiplicity of God because he's put God in a box. And by the way, this is another reason why we need community. You know, Moses comes to this very same spot Ask the very same question, show me yourself. Moses gets a fire and a windstorm. And then Elijah comes to the same spot, in the same place. Ask the very same question, show me yourself. And he gets a still small voice. Miriam, because he comes up to Yeshua in John 11, says, in John 11, 32, Mary's Miriam says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother Lazarus, he wouldn't have died. And then Martha, Miriam's sister, comes to Elijah, uh, comes to Yeshua in, in uh, John eleven twenty one. Exact same thing. If you had been here, Lord, my brother Lazarus wouldn't have died. Exact same situation. Exact same question. Miriam gets tears. Martha gets a theology lesson and a great revelation. Yeshua reveals to her in John 11, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. What's going on here? All these different responses. Different hearts need different things from the richness of God's glory. And therefore, unless you're living in community and have close relationships with a lot of other believers, you're not going to have a complete picture of who the Messiah is. None of us on our own are ever going to see the whole being, the whole picture, the whole reality of Yeshua. You're never going to really know who God is outside of community. And by the way, community is more than just going to services and eating lunch with the exact same people every week, much more. You need deep relationships with other believers, especially with people who aren't like you, who come from different backgrounds and have different life experiences. So, the overhead. Number one, we say the Lord, He comes in wisdom. Number two, He comes in humbling multiplicity. And then lastly, number three, He comes in a word of grace. What does a still, small voice mean? God's saying, the ultimate way I come to you, Elijah, is through the still, small voice. Not through the earthquake and the wind and the fire. What does this mean? And without the overhead, it means that God comes in a word of grace. First notice, Elijah, he doesn't go out. God says in 1 Kings 19.11, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. The Lord is about to pass by. But it's actually not until verse 13 that Elijah actually does go out. Why not? Because a hurricane comes, and then an earthquake, and then a fire. And Elijah's not touched by any of this. Why not? The rock. The rock shields him. The rock is torn up. The rock is burned. But the destruction cannot get through to Elijah. And then finally, in comes the word of God, the still small voice. 
On the one hand, God is saying, don't look to the spectacular, Elijah. Mount Carmel is not the norm. Elijah, you thought everyone's heart was going to be changed. Uh, you thought, everyone, you thought that this, these spectacular signs for me were the norm. You thought, Lord, you thought, Elijah, the dramatic miracles is what it takes to change somebody's heart. But it didn't change their hearts, did it? It didn't change them any more than the earthquake and the wind and the fire got into you. It, it could not penetrate their hearts any more than the, these powerful manifestations could get to you inside the mountain. It didn't do it. God says this to Elijah on the overhead, please. God says, let me tell you what will actually penetrate and change people's hearts. My voice. My word. My spirit through my word. And we can easily, easily make either a substitious or a superstitious mistake here. Substitution is underbelief. You know, the liberal skeptics say, Oh, I can best know God by simply going out into nature. I don't need the Bible. I don't need the Word of God. False. You cannot know God personally just by looking at His creation, just by looking at nature. Any more than you can know uh, Elon Musk personally, have a personal relationship with him, simply by looking under the car under the hood of one of his Teslas. You need to meet Elon Musk in person, talk to him, read his blogs and his papers and his articles, you know, spend time with him. Not just with his cars, not just with his creation. The other extreme is superstition. Where religious people say, you can't really know God except through miracles and signs and wonders and mystical experiences. Now, I'm all for signs and wonders and miracles. But no. The fa- in fact, the only way you can know that your mystical experience isn't indigestion <laughs> is to compare it to the Word of God. And Yeshua makes this very clear, explicitly clear, in this amazing, famous parable he tells in Luke 16 of the rich man who goes to hell. And the rich man, he looks up from hell into heaven and he sees Father Abraham, right? And he says to Abraham in Luke 16, verse 27, I beg you, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to my family. I've got four brothers. Uh, let him warm them so they won't come to this place of torment. He wants his brothers to know the truth about heaven and hell. So he says to Abraham, Send Lazarus back from the dead. A miracle. A miracle will convince them. And in the Yeshua's parable, how does he have Abraham respond? Look at verse 29. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he says. But if someone from the dead goes back, then they'll repent. Abraham said to him, If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be convinced. Even if someone rises from the dead. That's the power of God's word. More powerful than miracles to change hearts. Because we're told this in Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is powerful and it's active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. Penetrating. Even the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. Able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of your heart. So if you want to know God, If you want your life changed, go to the Scriptures. Read it for what it is, the voice of God. And pray to the Lord, Lord, speak to me through your word. Nothing will change your life like hearing the voice of God through the word of God. God wasn't in the earthquake or the wind or the fire. He was in the still, small voice. He was in his word. And in particular, the word of grace. This is what really changes you. 
This is what really melts your heart. A word of grace. Why wasn't Elijah smitten by the earthquake and the wind and the fire? The earthquake and the wind and the fire were tokens of judgment. Why is it that the God of the earthquake and the wind and the fire became the God of the still small voice for Elijah? Because the rock took the earthquake and the wind and the fire so that Elijah could then take and have the still small voice. And years later, by the way, God brought Elijah and Moses back from heaven to appear with Yeshua on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? So we read this in Luke 9, verse 30. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared to Yeshua with Yeshua in glorious splendor, talking with him. They spoke of his departure, his death, in the Greek, his exodus, <laughs> which was about, he was about to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. Moses and Elijah saw the rock in which they had been hidden so that they could have a relationship with God. Yeshua got the earthquake. When he died, there was an earthquake, right? Then the graves were open. Why? Because Yeshua was shaken with the justice of God. The judgment of God came down on him. He was torn to pieces. He was disintegrated so that you and I can be made whole. When Yeshua died, he inherited the wind. Proverbs eleven twenty nine. He who troubles his own house will inherit the wind. It's a curse. But Yeshua inherited the wind. He took the curse on our behalf so that we could get the gentle whisper of God's breath. Yeshua was the rock. He got the earthquake. He got the wind. He got the fire. Yochanan Hamabio, John the Baptist, had the spirit of Elijah and the personality of Elijah. And in Matthew 11, he sends Yeshua a question from prison. Remember Matthew 11, verse 3? And he asked Yeshua, are you the one who's to come? Or should we expect somebody else? John's trying to say, where's the fire? You should be coming in judgment. John is an Elijah figure. He says, where's all the spectacular stuff? You should be setting fire to burn up God's enemies. To burn up Herod, who's got me here in this prison. Why am I in prison? Yeshua, you've come in weakness. Uh, how can you be the Messiah? And how does Yeshua respond? He says basically the same thing that God says to Elijah here in 1 Kings 19. Yeshua says, John, you don't understand. If I came with the fire of God, Herod would not be the only one burned up. So would you. So would everyone. I did not come to bring, I came to bear the judgment of God. Because I have borne the judgment of God. Because I took the earthquake and the wind and the fire into my heart. You can have a personal relationship with God through me, the living word. Conclusion on the overhead. Number one, only seeing, only when you actually see what Yeshua took on himself and did for you, will that melt your heart. Melt your heart into surrendering your life to him. That's what will give you a personal relationship with God. Do you see what he's done for you? And and, and what you have deserved apart from his grace? Do you hear his still, small voice calling you? Number two, see God working in all the different places that are off your map. He works, for example, through the Gentile Christian church. Whether they have all of your messianic understanding or not. So, EC, I challenge you to be a people who breathe grace, not judgment. And number three, if today you're going through deep waters, if God is shaking you, know that Yeshua was the one really shaking. 
so that you could stand. Yeshua was the one who took the fire, the real fire. If you take hold of him, you will pass through the fire. He was the one burned. You will pass through the shaking. He was the one shaken. As time, see the Holy One of Israel embody the Messiah Yeshua and be changed. Amen. Amen.